Okay, that's the passage we're preaching from, so if you've got a Bible, you can open it there. If you don't, uh, there's one in front of you, and turn it open to 559. While you do that, let me pray, and then we'll consider this together. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us your word. We give you thanks that you've given us your spirit so that we can understand and believe your word. We thank you that we have not gathered to hear man's opinion about how to wade through life, but wisdom from God. And so give us then ears to hear it and eyes to see it, a mind to understand it, a heart to receive it, and a life to obey it. Come help us with all this, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have come to realize about myself that I have a real problem with indecision, that being decisive doesn't come naturally to me, and so it's something that I'm constantly working on and constantly conscious of. So I'm the guy, for example, that if you're going to ask, where do you want to go out to eat, I'm going to be of no help to you whatsoever, right? You know, that guy that's the only contribution they make to that conversation is anything. I'm up for anything, right? That's me. So in anything for me, my sort of philosophy is it's better to make no decision than a bad one right? It's better to make no decision than a bad one. That's why I don't hunt, but if I did hunt, I know I would be a terrible hunter because I know that I would be the guy that would go ready, set, aim, 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 aim. That would be me, right? Bambi would have eaten a meal and raised a family and retired and died, and I still would be waiting for the perfect shot. I have this philosophy. I don't know where it got in me, but I'm so paralyzed in making a bad decision, so committed to mitigating against mistakes, so desirous to ruling out failure, that I've got this personal philosophy that goes something like this. It's better to not take a shot than to take a shot and miss. If you're not sure you're going to hit the shot, it's better that you don't take it at all. That is a very lousy philosophy to live by. In fact, that's why I know that it is a sheer act of God that I became a church planter, right? It was a sheer act of God. I think about how the guy who planted the church that ended up helping plant our church. So we came out of a church in Boston called Seven Mile Road, Boston, and, and they helped us plant this church. Matt Cruz, who planted Seven Mile Road, Boston, his story and my story could not be more worlds apart. This is no exaggeration how Matt entered a church planting. His pastor, at the time a pastor of a small New England church, went to a conference, heard for the first time about church planting, and the speaker basically said, who in your congregation might be able to do that? So he called Matt Cruz into his office, and he said, Matt, I heard about church planting. I thought about you. What do you think? No exaggeration. Matt goes, okay, let's do that. And in 15 minutes, Matt decided he was going to plant a church. It took me five years to decide that we were going to plant this church. And that's no exaggeration. Five years of planning. We did papers and presented these papers before one another. We sought counsel and had conversations and had fasting prayer meetings for five years before I thought, okay, we should pull the trigger and plant a church. For me, it is better to not take a shot at all than to take a shot and miss. So I, I wonder, what about you? Maybe you're not risk-averse the way that I am. Maybe you don't struggle with indecision the way that I do. But I do wonder if you too might be able to relate. For example, for some of my single friends, maybe this is the why some of you guys won't ask out that girl. I wonder for some of you, maybe it's why you're afraid to make a big commitment like buying a home or getting married. I wonder for some of you, it's why you're still waiting for the perfect time 
to step into that next season of life or to, to make a decision or to start a family. And maybe it's why you haven't moved forward with pursuing that degree or enrolling in that program or taking that business venture that you'd like to. Maybe it's why you're not giving with the kind of generosity that you know would stretch you, but that you know you want to. Maybe it's why you keep putting off that conversation that you know you need to have, but no matter what, aren't ready to have it. Maybe it's why you dream of going overseas on missions, and yet the timing just never seems to be right, and you can't find a way to pull the trigger. And forget overseas, maybe it's why you can't seem to summon up the courage to share your faith with that friend, with that relative, that coworker, whatever it might be. You, you can imagine we could keep going. I don't know exactly what it is for you, but here's what I know. What all those things have in common is that underneath them all is risk. There's a risk involved. There's the possibility and potential that this step could be a misstep. And this could be a mistake. The possibility that things could go wrong, that things could go bad. And with risk, with the uncertainties and the unknowns, is this fear that stems from the fact that you don't know how any of those decisions will turn out. You have nothing to guarantee that any of those steps you take will be good ones. There's nothing to say that the girl will say yes when you ask her. There's nothing to say that the marriage will be happy once you enter it. There's nothing to say that the child will be healthy once you have it. There's nothing to say that the career will go well or that the degree would have been a good decision. There's nothing to say that your family will be safe should you move them overseas. There's nothing to say that the coworker, the friend, the relative, the neighbor won't reject you when you share your faith. There's nothing to say that the conversation will be easy or go well when you have that hard one. You see, you're not guaranteed anything about it. It's completely unknown to you. And not knowing how things will turn out, not knowing or being able to control how things will go, the reality that there's a risk involved can paralyze us, can make us feel like it's better to not take a shot if you're not sure that you're going to hit it. If there's any part of you that can relate with that, then like me, you need Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 to 6. You need this passage because the preacher is going to give some wisdom to us about how to live life when it is filled with so many uncertainties, when it is filled with so many unknowns. How do you live life wisely and well when it is filled with so many uncertainties and when it is filled with so many unknowns? Now listen, if you look at the passage, 559, you'll see that the preacher will be the first to admit that life is full of uncertainties, that life is full of unknowns. In fact, catch this. Human ignorance, the human inability to know how things will turn out, is the canvas on which the preacher is going to paint his message. It's the backdrop on which he's going to present what he wants to present. In fact, four times in the span of just six verses, there's going to be one phrase that's repeated over and over and over again. Six verses, and yet four times he's going to thread this phrase throughout so that you don't miss it. He's going to say over and over again, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know. Did you catch it? He says it in verse 2. You don't know what disaster may happen on earth. Meaning, none of us know where the next earthquake is going to be, where the next hurricane is going to come, when the next forest fire will break out. 
None of us know what the economy will do next year, what the stock market will do next week. You don't know what's going to happen between U.S. and North Korea. There is just so much about life and the world you don't know. Verse 5 is going to add to that and say, and you don't know the way that the spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman. He's going to say, you don't know how life and the mystery of life. You, you think of our day. With all of our science and all of our technology, we can peer now into the womb. And yet with all that we can see, we still confess that life is a mystery. You imagine in Solomon's day, where everything happening in the womb was hidden to everyone. How does life happen? How does breath come into this fetus? How, how does that happen? You don't know. Verse 5 will add, and moreover, you don't know the work of God who makes everything. Tell me, with all of you who do know God, who've trusted in him as your savior, have you figured out God by now? Have you figured out his patterns and his ways? Has he become predictable to you? Or is it like the rest of us that you go, you have no idea why he allows this and not that? Why he allows that and not this? You don't know the work and ways of God. And moreover, verse 6 will say, and also you don't know that which will prosper. You don't know which project is going to succeed and which one is going to fail. You don't know which shot is going to go in and which one's going to bounce off the rim. You don't know. You don't know which seed is going to go into the ground and take root and bear fruit and which one's going to go into the ground and wither and die. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. That's the canvas. That's the background on which the preacher is going to paint this message. And so the preacher is well aware that life is full of uncertainties, that life is full of unknowns, and that we human beings living life under the sun do not know how things will turn out. One commentator very succinctly puts it like this. He simply says, we dwell in significant ignorance about what is and what will be happening in our world. So, the question is, given that reality, given that there are so many uncertainties, and given that there are so many unknowns to life, how should you live? You'd imagine that the religious answer would be, so be conservative and play it safe. You'd imagine the religious answer would be, so stay indoors and avoid risk and minimize danger. And yet, perhaps it may surprise you or go against your natural nature like mine to hear that actually the preacher is going to say the wise way to live life under the sun, given all its uncertainties and all its unknowns, is to take wise risks. That the way to live wisely and well in life under the sun, with all its uncertainties and all its unknowns, is to take wise risks. Hear him say that in verses 1 and 2. It says this, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, this isn't the easiest two verses to translate. And so commentators have gone back and forth and trying to figure out exactly what is the preacher, the voice of Ecclesiastes, saying in these verses. Some will say what the preacher is doing is he's giving sort of basic financial advice, if you will. You could take it this way. For example, Israel was a nation that was agriculture and would have produced a great deal of grain. And so one of the things they were good at was maybe making bread, producing grain. What they weren't very good at was trade, especially over the seas. 
It was thought that the Israelite people were afraid of the seas. They saw the seas as dangerous, maybe even a symbol of evil for them. In fact, earlier in Ecclesiastes, Solomon speaks, or the preacher speaks, of seeing someone lose all his wealth in one venture. And so maybe, given that risk, you would think the advice would be, so then keep your grain and play it safe. Make your bread. Eat it here. Because after all, with investment... There's always a risk. The view of a long-term gain always carries with it a short-term risk. So it is with investment. And so you'd imagine maybe the point would be, the advice of the day would be, play it safe. Don't take any risks. After all, as it, as it says in, in a good movie called Rounders, you can't lose what you don't put in. You can't lose what you don't put in. But you can't win much either. Where there's no risk, there's no reward, and so the preacher's advice actually is cast, or other translations will say, send your bread down the waters. Cast your bread upon the waters. Send your bread down the waters. So it's almost like where a Jay's personal philosophy would be, better not to shoot than to shoot and miss, the preacher would simply come back and say, yeah, but you can't make any of the shots you don't take. You can't make any of the shots you don't take. And so the preacher would say, send your bread onto the waters. Cast your bread onto the waters. You you know that this takes a risk, but take that risk. And if you were to say back to the preacher, preacher, but what about all the risks that are involved? Well, the preacher is not naive. He's aware of them all. And so verse 2 will give you practical advice about how to take risks. He'll say, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. So it's almost if you were to carry the same idea, if you're going to send your bread down the waters, then diversify it. Disperse it over seven ships, even eight ships, if you will. It'd be the equivalent of the way that we today have a phrase that says, don't put all your eggs in one basket because you don't know what's going to happen. And so any financial planner would tell you, listen, if you're going to be wise, you need to diversify your investments. You need to spread them out. And so what are we learning? We're learning that we're to take risks, but the call is not to be daredevils, and the call is not to be fools, but to take wise risks, thought out, well-planned, considered risks. Others would say, no, 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 this isn't about financial advice. This is probably about giving. It's probably about generosity. And so when he's talking about giving your bread, giving to seven portions and eight, he's talking about generosity. And even so, here's how it would apply. It's almost like, listen, when you give to the poor, it can feel like that's money that's gone down the drain. You have no idea if it's going to benefit anyone or do anything. It can feel like you're going to throw this money away and never see it again. It can feel like you're throwing bread onto the water. When you do that, what happens? It's either going to get soggy and sink, or the birds are going to pick at it, or the winds and the waves are going to take it away, so it can feel like when you give to the poor. And yet here he's saying, give. And don't let the potential of disaster stop you. In fact, give to seven. That seven is the biblical number for completion. So be totally generous. In fact, do one better than seven. Give to eight. Give generously. Give liberally, and you'll find That when you give, God has a way of bringing it back to you. Give generously, and you'll find that taking that risk will come with reward. Take that step. Take that step of faith, if you will. He says here, 
aren't there, we would say throughout the Bible, plenty of promises from the scriptures that would put steel in our spine and give us strength to take the risk of generosity. For example, Proverbs 19, verse 17, you can just hear this verse. It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. You think of that. Yes, you are taking a risk in giving, in stretching your generosity. But don't you know, when you give to the poor, you are lending to the Lord, and he will remain a debtor to no one. He will repay Deuteronomy 15 will say, the one who gives to the poor will receive blessings. Luke 14 will say, if you give now, you will be repaid at the resurrection. There is no one who has an account with God that's not been settled. He will not be a debtor to anyone. And so take a risk, give generously. You see, either way, whatever exactly this cryptic verse might mean, whatever the exact application would be, here'd be the point. Yes, there are uncertainties and unknowns in life. And yet, don't let that paralyze you from taking risks, from taking wise risks. Because you know what? Sometimes you will set something onto the waters, and you imagine that the winds and the waves will take it away, and you'll never see it again. And yet the one beyond the sun controls it all, and sometimes it finds its way back to you. You can ask a woman named Jochebed. Jochebed was a mom who once put a basket on the Nile River, and in it was her baby, her own son, Moses. And as the story goes, the winds and the waves took it where it will, but there was one beyond the sun who controls where the winds and the waves go, and she got back that which she had put in. And so if there's a message, I think, to Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6, here's how I'd say it. It's despite the uncertainty of life, Let certainty in God free you to take wise risks. Despite the uncertainty of life, let certainty in God free you to take wise risks. I think that's what you're going to see again in verses 3 and 4. Listen to what he says. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So the preacher is saying, look, there are certain realities to life, all of which we know, none of which we can control. When the clouds are dark and gray and saturated with water, they're going to burst with rain. They're going to burst with snow. That's the way it happens, and there's nothing you can do to control it. You can't determine when it's going to rain or when it's not going to rain. You can't make it snow, and you can't make it stop snow. There's nothing you can do about that reality. Likewise, when the wind blows and a tree falls, where it falls, there it will lie. That's the reality, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't control the wind or the direction in which it blows or where the tree falls or where it will lie. Now the preacher says, okay, given those realities, picture a farmer. Picture a farmer, and he's got his eyes glued to the weather channel. He's got the weather channel on his app. He steps outside, and he's watching the winds. He's observing the clouds, and what's he doing? He's waiting for the ideal time to go out and sow seed. He's waiting for all the conditions to be just right. And so he's watching the winds. He's monitoring the breeze. He's paying attention to the clouds. And so you can picture this farmer. 
He goes out to work, but then he comes back in because a breeze blew by. He goes out to work, he picks up his bag of seed, and then he drops it back to the ground because there's a dark gray cloud in the sky. You can picture him, tentative and hesitant, waiting, waiting for the conditions to be just right, waiting because if you asked him, he would say, I was going to go so, but it looked like it was going to rain. I was going to go so, but it looked like the wind might fall, and who knows where that tree would fall down. And so he's waiting, he's hemming, he's hawing, he's hesitant. His philosophy would be better to not sow than to sow and miss, than to risk it being washed away by the water or blown away by the wind, and so he's waiting. Well, the preacher looks at that farmer, and here's his conclusion, verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. He essentially says, you know what's going to happen to that guy? He's never going to plant And he's never going to have anything to harvest because he's waiting for the ideal time. You see, the advice here would be, the counsel here would be, the instruction here would be, waiting to bring life under your control. Trying to beat the system because you can predict how things will turn out. Waiting for conditions to be perfect. You are going to find yourself waiting forever and never acting. If you are overly cautious... You are destined to fail because perfect conditions will never arrive. It will never arrive. And so you will find yourself forever waiting. A pastor named John Piper wrote this small, thin booklet called Risk is Right. You could read it in one setting. If any of this resonates with you, it'd be worth your reading. In it, he has this simple, great paragraph where he talks about how hesitant we can be and how paralyzed we can be by the risks that are involved in life, the uncertainties and unknowns. Hear what he says. He says, the futility of finding a risk-free place to stand has paralyzed many of us. I have tasted this in my own pastoral leadership. There are decisions to be made, but I can't see which decision is best. There are so many unknowns. The temptation is to run away, if not physically, emotionally. Just think about something else. Put it off. Procrastinate. Hope the problem goes away, but it doesn't. And our paralysis is serving no one. The paralyzing fear of making a decision serves no one. It is cowardly. Risk is the only way forward. That's right. Risk is the only way forward. Given this life with all its uncertainties, the certainty there is one beyond the sun who controls all the unknowns, should free us to take wise risks. Risk is the only way forward. In fact, he goes on to say, in fact, sometimes not acting is just as sinful and wrong as acting wrongly. That making the wrong decision, making a mistake, may require you to ask for forgiveness, but so may doing nothing and sitting on your hands. To give you this, to illustrate this, he quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer in this very convicting quote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've ever heard the name, was a pastor during World War II and Nazi Germany. And there came a time where Christians and the church needed to take a stance against Hitler and against Nazism. And yet what he found were that so many Christians and so many churches were tentative and waiting and hesitant, not wanting to make a mistake. And so Bonhoeffer issued a letter to his brothers and sisters in Christ, to the church, If you'll hear it, it'll convict you. Hear hear this paragraph with me. Bonhoeffer says to the churches, to the Christians at his day, 
A decision must be made at some point, and it's no good waiting indefinitely for a sign from heaven that will solve the difficulty without further trouble. Even the ecumenical movement has to make up its mind and is therefore subject to error like everything human. But to procrastinate and prevacate simply because you're afraid of erring when others, and I mean our brethren in Germany, must make infinitely more difficult decisions every day seems to me almost to run counter to love. To deny or to fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. That last line is worth hearing and considering. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. The farmer who waits for the wind is always going to wait. And who waits for the cloud is always going to wait. He's neither going to sow nor have anything to reap. I'll give you an example of this. This week, I was talking to someone, and someone told me that they went on Facebook and they saw that one of their distant friends, an acquaintance, wrote something on Facebook essentially saying, I, I, I think I'm an, an atheist at this point. I'm not quite there. I'm not brave enough to say it maybe yet, but I'm close. And immediately in this person's mind was a thought that said, I should reach out to this person. I should write to them. And as soon as that thought popped up, 10 other thoughts popped up as well. And the 10 other thoughts were, yeah, but am I close enough to do that? Do I have the sort of relationship that's close enough to do that? And how will that come across on Facebook? And is Facebook the right medium to do that? Maybe I should wait till I'm person. In person, that's when you should do this. Because in person, these conversations will happen better. And so the next time I see this person in person, that's when the one who waits for the wind is always going to wait for the wind. And the one who waits to sow because of the cloud is always going to wait to sow. And so this person told me, this passage and this verse came to mind. They had talked about it in GCM, our smaller communities. And in light of this one verse, they fired off a message. And wouldn't you know, a message came back. One that was gracious and generous and kind and expressed gratitude and said, thanks so much for reaching out and would love to have this conversation. The one who waits to sow is always going to wait. And the, the one who watches the wind is always going to watch the wind. Now, if you ask me, so what's going to come of that? Is that atheist now going to hear about Jesus and become a Christian and, and repent and trust in the Lord? I have no idea. And the next two verses would say, I don't need to know. Because my job is not, your job is not to determine what happens. The next two verses would free you from having to do that. Look at verse 5 and 6. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. If there's a contrast in this passage, it's between us and God. Because so far we've been saying, look, ultimately we don't make anything. We don't make anything happen. But verse 5 says, God makes everything, and we'd add happen. God makes everything happen. What we don't know, God knows. What we don't control, God controls. The winds go where God tells them to go. The waves blow where God wants them to go. The, the tree falls where God has directed it to fall. Life is sent into the womb by God. Crops grow by the sovereignty of God. What we don't control, He controls. There's so much about life under the sun we don't know. 
But we know exactly what we need to know, which is that the one beyond the sun controls it all. And so despite the uncertainty of life, we should let certainty in God free us to take wise risks. Wisdom in this passage then is not self-reliant activity, but nor is it God-dependent passivity. It's not God is in control, so I'll sit on my hands. Instead, the passage is, you know what the farmer should do? He should sow his seed. He should do it in the morning, and he should not stop doing it in the evening, because you know why? He doesn't know if those seeds will grow, but he also doesn't know that it won't grow. And the only way he's going to find out is to sow the seed. You don't know that everything will be okay, but you also don't know that everything won't, not whatever the double negative, be okay. And so the only way you figure it out is to give it a shot. Because the one beyond the sun is in control and you can take wise risks. Isn't that so freeing? Brother, sister, if you take that in, isn't it freeing to go, my job is to throw the seed and to take the shot and God determines the results. Isn't it freeing when you think about all the things in life you do that you wonder, does this make any difference at all? You ever struggle with that? You pray a thousand prayers. And doesn't it feel like you're throwing bread on the water every time you pray these prayers? You pray for the city of Philadelphia. Did you catch what we just did? We prayed over the city of Philadelphia. Now you tell me, did that do anything? Is that going to change the city? Is that going to change the leaders? Is that going to bring peace to our city? You cast your bread onto the waters. Doesn't it feel like that? We pray for people groups on the other side of the planet. We don't know how to pronounce their names. Are we, are we trusting that those... Doesn't it feel like you're throwing out bread onto the waters? And who knows what's going to happen to those prayers? You pray for someone who's sick. You pray for someone's marriage. You pray for someone to conceive. You pray thousands of prayers. And don't you wonder, does any of this make any difference at all? Or, or, or you teach a Sunday school class. You've prepped all week. And you pour everything you have into a five-year-old. And don't you wonder, did that make any difference at all? Don't you wonder, as that eight-year-old is sitting in front of you, is any of this sinking in? Is this making any difference whatsoever? Isn't it freeing to know your job is to cast your bread on the water and sow your seed in the morning and in the evening and leave the results to God? To encourage you, can I tell you a story I heard again this week? I remember reading this a while ago. There was a man named Luke Short. Luke Short, when he was 103 years old, recalled a sermon that he had heard. And at that moment, sitting there at 103, he remembered again how someone had told him how Jesus Christ had come into the world to die for his sins and that he was in need of a Savior. And at 103, he repented of his sins and he trusted in Christ. What makes the story amazing was that he had heard that sermon 85 years earlier by a Puritan preacher named John Flavel. As an 18-year-old man, he heard that sermon. And that seed took 85 years to sprout. 85 years later, at 103, what was planted in him at the age of 18 took root and bore fruit. Three years later, he died. On his tombstone, it said, Here lies Luke Short, Age three in grace, age 106 by nature. Isn't it freeing? 
to cast your prayers to the Lord in the morning and in the evening, to take great risks and be completely freed to know the results are in God's hands. Isn't it likewise freeing that the goal of life is not to mitigate against mistakes? Isn't it likewise freeing to go, failure doesn't mean you are outside of God's will. Someone, I need to tattoo that to my heart. Failure is not equivalent to being outside of God's will. Because if you've heard the message of Ecclesiastes, sometimes good things happen to bad people, and sometimes bad things happen to good people, and life is wonderfully out of your control, and it's controlled by the one beyond the sun. And with life, there will come successes and failures, and you are abandoned to take great risks and entrust the results to God. So you can ask someone out, and the relationship may not work out, and it still be in God's will. Isn't it freeing to know that you can have a hard conversation and it doesn't go well and it can still be in God's will? Isn't it freeing to know you could move your family overseas and the mission doesn't really work out and you come back without seeing any converts and it could still be in God's will? You could try in three years at Seven Mile Road to start a residency and see churches planted and at the end of the three years have no churches planted. And the risk would still be in God's will. Failure is not the thing we're trying to avoid. We can take wise risks. This season is Christmas. In Christmas, we remember Jesus Christ who came down to earth. And we remember that Jesus Christ came as a preacher. And when he preached, I want you to hear, he preached just like the preacher of Ecclesiastes. In fact, he once told a parable. He said there was a master who had three servants, and he gave to each one some money, this huge sum of money, to one a lot, to one a little less, to one a little less than that. And the master went away for a long time. When he came back, the first one was so glad, and he went with excitement, and he said to his master, you gave me five, and I turned it into ten. He went to the second one, and the second one said, you gave me two, and I made it four. And he went to the third one. And the third one came up to this master and he said, Master, I know that you're a hard man. And so I took what you gave me and I buried it in the ground. And here it is, exactly what you gave me. And the preacher of that parable said, that third servant was worthless and lazy and condemned. Now you think about it and you go, he didn't waste any of the master's money. He didn't spend it. He didn't lose it. But he failed to make good on it, failed to invest on it, failed to double it, failed to take a risk with it. He did nothing with it. And Jesus called that man condemned. You'd imagine part of this would be what investments are you making for the glory of God, the good of people? What risks are you taking? You'd have to wonder, listen, out of all people, us Christians, we should be the wisest risk takers there are in the world. You think of it. We ought not play it safe. You think of what we believe. We believe we have someone beyond the sun who is in control of every detail of our life. You believe that. Not just here. You believe it here. Moreover, you believe that this one beyond the sun is so powerful, he can take even your mistakes and make good come out of it. And so nothing will eternally be bad because he is able to make everything for your good. 
And moreover, you believe that because the one beyond the sun came into this world, died and rose again, all who believe in him have resurrection, meaning you and I are eternally safe and secure. There is no risk involved in our eternal destination. So much so Jesus could say, look, even if they kill you, not a hair on your head will perish. And you go, wait, that's a contradiction. No, no, no. Even if the worst should come, nothing of you will perish. And so you'd wonder how many of us have wisely thought about the last 20 years of our life and have planned and financially invested for the last 20 years and been totally oblivious to the 20 billion years that come after. If, if you're financially wise, you can't help but look at young people who spend their money foolishly and go, how do they spend like that? How are they not thinking about the future? Don't they know they have 60 to 80 to prepare for? And yet the Bible would come to us and say, you have planned so meticulously for 60 to 80 and given no thought for the 2 billion years thereafter. And so invest, take wise risks for the glory of God, for the expansion of his kingdom, for the advance of the gospel, for the good of your neighbor, for the joy of your own soul. And so one question for you would be, what risk, what risk of obedience is God calling you to take as you step into this new year? What risky step of obedience is God calling you to take as you step into this new year? Despite the uncertainties of life, we should let certainty in God free us to take wise risks. Let's pray together.